Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. We are continuing today a conversation with James Rogers, Clay Warden, and Jack Southworth on ranch finance and risk management, which we began in episode 86. We're just going to jump into it. So if you're listening to the podcast for the first time and you want to hear the slightly longer introductions to these guys, you might want to pause here and listen through episode 86 first. Welcome back. I, I think we quit the last episode with me bouncing around trying to say something useful about record keeping as a basis for financial planning. But we had also been talking about uh, different uh, different kind of basis for keeping track of things. We talked about matching up economic data with unit data. And I think maybe we can jump in here by asking the question, is that consistent across owned ranches, contract ranches, leased cows, etc.? They're it seems like there's more ways to be in the cattle business today than there used to be. And I think that's a good thing, but it means that there's probably not one single way to keep track of things and measure success potentially. Yeah, I think that uh, the basic uh, concept of matching up the economic economic data with the, the uh, production data is consistent uh, beyond uh, just owned ranches. Uh, but I do think that you bring up a good point, Tip, in that, you know, so oftentimes we see uh, agriculture operators operating just as Granddad did. And in this uh, volatile environment, uh, it probably does provide an opportunity to look at the uh, cost uh, profit structure of your ranch in these other areas. And James, maybe I'll, I'll ask you the first question is, you know, I think you've had experience really in all three of those own land, uh, contract cattle and land rental. Um, did you did you find anything different when you uh, measured those against each other? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think there's um, just trying to think of the best way to answer that. Uh, part of it, I think some of the costs get. Um, when you have leased land and you have leased cattle, I think you tend to look at all of those expenses a little bit more clearly because you're, um, well, you either have lease payments to be able to make. So you, you, you're just, um, you're more in tune with what all of your expenses are versus when you own a ranch and own cattle, I think some of those expenses can kind of be hidden or you're not as attentive to those things. Although that we, we should be attentive to those things. I just think by nature, we tend to um, not keep track of those details. And I think we should aspire to keep track of all those details, even when we own a ranch and own the cattle. And Jack, you're obviously, you've got a, a successful ranch uh, and you're in the uh, primarily the ownership standpoint. Do you think that resonates true in terms of the, I would say, the overhead costs? Uh, sometimes those get lost in determining your total profit when you're looking at maybe various enterprises. Your thoughts on that? 
So many of our costs on an own operation are overhead costs, aren't they? Where you have labor and you have all that equipment, you have housing at times. And so we tend to take those costs as given that we can't change very much. And reality is that we need to look at those uh, with a very sharp pencil and find ways, maybe not quickly, but over time, reduce our overhead costs. Yeah, Jack, uh, James and I had an opportunity on a ranch to, to look into some of those expense categories and repair and maintenance is one of those areas that we, you know, kind of try to look at. And initially it was just kept as one big category. But as we dove into that, we found areas like tires, you know, fuel, uh, some of the uh, repair parts and uh, without really doing a deep dive into each one of those, that category was really too big to manage. And what we determined was that, you know, part of that maintenance budget gets back to what you spoke about in the earlier podcast of having the right people and having the right team. And if you've got a team that is tough on equipment uh, or is prone to accidents, uh, those show up in reduced profits in future years. Whether you're repairing equipment that didn't need to be repaired or replacing equipment sooner than you need to or having increased insurance cost just because of the accidents that are happened. That's sure true, Clay. But I wonder if today we should come at it from a different perspective or different approach in that it isn't the uh, cost, the overhead costs that maybe we need to look at as much as are we in the right business as ranches? You know, historically, a lot of us have been cow-calf. And maybe should we be cow-calf yearling? Should we be purchased yearling? Should we be custom grazing? And if I'm a rancher that is concerned about climate change, rising feed costs, increased fuel costs, increased fertilizer costs, how do I go about looking at what business I should be in, or if not what business, what enterprise is the most profitable for me? Boy, that is innovative thinking, Jack, for, for someone who's been on a place as long as you have. And I couldn't really agree more. I think so oftentimes we tend to just do what grandpa did. And uh, when you look at the diverse landscape, some outfits are um, such that you don't have to feed a lot of hay in the winter. They have a significant advantage over those outfits that have to feed a lot of hay in the winter, and especially if you can't put up enough hay on your ranch. So I think looking at uh, those various enterprises is smart. And maybe I'll kick it to James. I know on one outfit that James was on, um, they ended up doing some goats as a uh, as another enterprise that that generated some profits. Uh, James, you want to talk about when you analyze that as an option for that ranch? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> something I'm real proud of, always thinking about uh, things such as goats. But they're, yeah, I, I think you, when you get into a landscape, you try to figure out how to um, take advantage of the things that are just, that happen to be there by nature, right? And in that particular case, you know, there was a lot of, uh, Quite frankly, there was a lot of sagebrush shrubs. Uh, there was a, a ton of um, uh, rabbit brush and some other, you know, shrubbery that was in the landscape. And we didn't feel like we were getting any utilization of that at all. And so it left this big void of uh, 
opportunity. And so we just started thinking about what are the things that could take advantage of that? I mean, we were trying to manage those things with chemicals, which was an input. And we thought, well, is there an enterprise that was out there that we could actually make money from rather than spend money from? And so, uh, yeah, we you think about um, goats being ones that would eat shrubs, probably more sheep eat forbs, cattle eat grass. I mean, that would be their primary go-to diet. And so um, goats became a consideration for us. And so we ended up um, actually over time bringing about 2,000 head of goats in on the operation with very little competition against uh, the livestock or the, the cattle enterprise and started generating um, some money. And I wouldn't say like for us, it became a little bit, um, you know, we were, were we going to use these goats to actually manage the shrubs because it's kind of hard to get uh, optimize a production model when you're really trying to make an impact on shrubs. Um, so there were biological benefits, not just cash benefits that we were seeing from the goat enterprise. And some of those intangibles are hard to measure. Um, and so I think that gets a little bit tricky, but the, the very fact there was this big void and this big opportunity and we, uh, adopted an enterprise that we uh, really appreciated after about three or four years. Yeah, and I would add to that just the comparison between the two options. It's a, I think they're nice, maybe clean, simple examples. But the idea behind the herbicide is that you're expecting an increased, uh, you're expecting an economic output perhaps on a delay in the form of increased grass production uh, because those shrubs are likely at high enough levels that they're competing with grass. And so there is a bit of a, you know, a, a, a one-to-one trade-off where if you reduce the shrub cover, you're likely going to get an increase in grass cover, but that might be on a one or two year delay. And so you have the upfront cost, which could be significant if you're talking about very many acres of a herbicide application where you may not see the output from that for a little while down the road with the goats, it might be a slower pathway to getting that shrub reduction. But in the meantime, you've got less of a, of a financial outlay. You've got less money going out, uh, and, and potentially, you know, a net neutral profit center there or an enterprise, so to speak, because you've got some additional labor and expense in managing the goats. Um, uh, I think it's a good comparison. And Jack, to your example of, hey, I've been a cow-calf operation for, for some time and, and should we consider, you know, yearlings or should we be more yearlings? I think that goes back to that other leg of the stool is the ecological piece. And what is the terrain and your opportunity to, to grow, grow feed? And uh, what is the hay cost? And I don't think the cow-calf operation is one that you can get in and out of real efficiently like you can a yearling operation. So if you've got a, a, a ranch that is very volatile in, uh, you know, depending on the weather, perhaps a yearling operation makes a lot of sense. Or if you're high country with a lot of snowpack, uh, you know, reducing that hay. But I think in making that decision for me, being the bean counter of the group, you know, I would run the economics of that and really kind of try and understand what 
is my gross uh, inputs required for either of those enterprises? What do I think my gross proceeds will be uh, once I liquidate or sell? Uh, I would include in there, you know, the uh, depreciation costs, the maintenance costs, even some of those, you know, overhead costs uh, that that are required, and then. I think the probably that next piece is the ability to f- to finance uh, those uh, activities. If you have to, uh, you know, get a, a draw a loan to put a bunch of stockers on there, interest needs to be factored in. And and what's that interest cost compared to if you've got a cow herd, you know, already built into to your ranch that that is in SS maybe paid for? Uh, what's your thoughts there, Jack? I guess Clay, the thing I want to know is what's the common metric that compares a cow-calf enterprise to a, let's say, yearling heifer enterprise. And if I have a thousand acres of rangeland, how do I compare what's the best use of that rangeland? Yeah, for me, that would be an economic analysis. And and I would start with the revenue side. And I would say, okay, on my cow-calf operation, what's my expected calving rate? Uh, what's my weaning rates? What do I think we're going to get at the market and put a gross proceeds number down that, that annually I'm going to get? And then I would compare that with, uh, let's just call it a, a replacement heifer program or a, a yearling program. I would do the same and say, okay, what is, what's the total cash that I'm going to get when I liquidate out of that operation? And obviously, you'd have to figure out how many head of each you could carry. And as we talked about with the AUMs, you know, a cow-calf is a 1.4 and a, a yearling maybe a, a 0.8. So, you'd figure out how many units that you could run on that that land and what your your gross proceeds would be. Then uh, the next step for me would be look at the inputs. Well, let, let, me, let me stop you for a minute because I think you really nailed something there that is critical to a good analysis is realizing the difference between cow-calf and a yearling operation in the amount of forage that a cow-calf uh, enterprise requires per unit versus the yearling per unit. And so, if we have a certain number of acres on a ranch, it's important to uh, figure out how many units we can run on that ranch, isn't it? Yes. And I think, you know, we spoke about that briefly on that earlier call uh, or podcast where if you can get more units or more throughput through your operation, your chance of profits should go up. So, what's an example of getting more units for cow-calf or a yearling? Well, just using the standard AUM numbers, if we were just, you know, speaking in in basic numbers, if you had a 500 cow operation and let's say you were at a a 90% uh, calf crop, that's, you know, how many units you'd have to sell. But on Mm -hmm. that same property, you may be able to have six or 700 um, yearling units that go through there. So, figuring out what your profit per animal would be on your cow-calf operation compared to what your profit would be on that yearling operation, that would give you a good starting point to see if there is a economic difference between running one or the other. And what I like about what you just said, Clay, is we don't need really extraordinary records to do that, do we? Most of us know off the top of our head what our weaning weights are, what our weaning rates are, uh, the number of months we have to feed hay. These are things that are at our fingertips to do a pretty good analysis. Am I way off or am I on? 
No, I think you're spot on. And that's why I talked about, let's look at the revenue side first, because, you know, given the market conditions, uh, if the revenue side of that equation isn't that different, then you don't have to take it much further because your inputs other than maybe hay in the fall, you know, if you're an owned property, your inputs are going to be about what your inputs are. Uh, so the question would be, if you changed enterprises, uh, would there be significant input difference in terms of number of trucks, trailers, housing, you know, just the overhead piece of it? And I think that's why I like starting with the income side to really understand what is the maximum uh, cash I can generate from either one of these enterprises. And then if you decide that you ought to pursue one of those, you start looking at the cost side of it and see what costs you can take out. Okay. So what after I, an analysis I did on our ranch, a cow calf returned $20 per animal unit month of grass and a, a, on a gross margin and a yearling heifer enterprise returned $30 per animal unit month of grass. How do I dial back that cow-calf enterprise and dial up a yearling heifer enterprise? Do either you or James have experience in that? And before you answer, I want to say that most of our operations, we're not going to sell the cow herd overnight and go all yearling, are we? We will adjust gradually. Are there, do you have any advice on how to make that gradual adjustment, but still working within the limits of a cattle cycle? James? No, I mean, I think it's a really good question. And I, I think it is a really hard paradigm shift for, for or a big leap for ranchers to go all in on something. Um, I, I mean, I, I can speak from experience with my dad because he was a cow-calf guy his entire life. And as I kind of left the ranch and he found, um, you know, he was kind of struggling even with finding labor, right? And then mm -hmm. kind of overwhelmed with the amount of uh, kind of the cost to finance equipment for his hay operation, you know, his operating line of credit because he was feeding hay all winter and needed to keep putting fuel in the hay, or, you know, the tractor to run the hay buster and all that stuff. I mean, when we really sat down and went through that analysis with him, um, he really just said, well, why do I even own these cows and calves? Like I can make way more money. <laughs> more money off the yearlings and quit financing all this stuff, take that interest money, you know, that I'm paying out every year and put it in my pocket. And so he kind of went all in with both feet. That is a very hard thing for most ranchers to do. And when you're trying to support, I would say that it, when you run these analysis and you're trying to keep some of those cows and calves, if you keep any of those cows and calves, there's a certain amount of expenses that you're just going to end up keeping like that truck or tractor and hay buster like you're still going to maintain that and that's still going to be depreciating out whether you're feeding 10 bales a day or whether you're feeding five bales a day because you reduced half of your cow herd and so those depreciation costs don't really change that much and so you really haven't affected the opportunity to by only going part way right and i don't know if that makes sense or not but my dad um he went all in right and then saw some drastic savings by getting rid of an enterprise that was really completely outside of his, um, you know, I think the opportunity this landscape afforded him and went all to yearlings. Um, I think the second benefit that he really started to recognize was the time value of money, which he, he was really only operating on six months of labor 
and expenses for out of the entire year. Whereas if he would have kept a few cows and calves, he would have still basically been working all year round for just a reduced number of cows and calves. He still had to be available. He still had to show up when he got completely out of that enterprise. He was now, uh, I mean, quite frankly, he was able to go, uh, on a cruise with my mom in the wintertime and didn't have to worry about keeping a hired man around and he didn't have to keep the tractor plugged in and he didn't have to, you know, the different things that he was having to do to still support those enterprises. And so, um, but I get the heartache that it can be to try to maintain, you know, and I think genetics is one of those things that ranchers as a whole, I think my dad really struggled with as he'd worked his whole life to build up this set of genetics that he really didn't want to part with because he thought if this is all a mistake or if the market conditions change, how do I ever get those genetics back? You don't just go mm-hmm. buy those tomorrow, especially those ge- genetics that are adapted to your environment, adapted to your operation. So it's a really good question and a, a dilemma that I think that is a, a, a real struggle for ranchers. I think right now we have a tremendous opportunity though, don't we? We have a great market. I mean, may not be great, but it's pretty darn good. We can reduce our cow herds and sell those lower producing, later calving, older cows and end up with a a younger cow herd and make room for more yearlings. That'd be one approach. What's another way that we could find access to more yearlings if we wanted to start buying them, Clay? You know, I think another thing that we're seeing folks do is try and find um, grass to lease, even though you may be a landowner that owns own land. Um, I know for James and I, you know, we lease some land in in uh, California. We lease some uh, in Wyoming and we lease some in Nevada. And uh, uh, the trucking rates have certainly uh, gone up with the, the fuel costs, but we found it you know, more economical to haul some cattle to grass as opposed to necessarily bringing grass to them. So I think there is opportunities within the the whole cattle industry uh, as long as one's flexible and willing to diversify from, you know, what they've traditionally done. Well, Jack, I would um, more point. I mean, there's people that we know. I think network is probably a really... Um, something we should take advantage of because there's other people within your network, let's say, that have good genetics that you can tap into that resource of yearlings and purchase purchase those yearlings that still have the kind of performance you're looking for. And so I think creating those partnerships and networks is really important to to keep your, you know, to find those genetics that you might you might be needing. You bet. One of the analysis I did down here in the South for a, uh, a conglomerate of ranchers that were getting together and wanted to take their beef, you know, all the way to consumers. And so we really looked at all the enterprises. What kind of profit can the cow-calf guy expect? What kind of profit can the backgrounder expect? What kind of profit can the feed mark, feed lot expect? And then how much profit do you give up when it gets cut and wrapped and, and put on the grocery shelves? And I think that opened folks' eyes is that there is profit in each one of those and it's not uh, linear. You know, it's, it's, it's different for, for different areas, but somebody can play in those categories and probably be more profitable than others. So to me, it's really finding where's the sweet spot or how do you optimize your operation for profits? Right. So, you know, James Collins in his book, Good to Great, talks about 
emphasizing what you do best, what you're best in the world out at, what you have a passion for doing and what's profitable. But we as ranchers have a hard time putting all our eggs in one basket. James, your dad, the story you told, it sounded like he just jumped in the deep end of the swimming pool. And I'm more of a person that wants to start at the kiddie end and and, and get my toe wet and, and wade in. It's a it's a big decision to uh, change these enterprises. And uh, I just want to find ways that I can adjust over time without th- threatening the financial viability of our ranch. Well, I think you're starting to do that, Jack. And clearly your record keeping is such if, you know, if you know you're making $20 uh, a month in the cow-calf and $30 on the yearling, you know, one of the equations there is you may not have yearlings on the ranch all year. And so, you know, that has got to get into your total profit picture. But if you determine that uh, the yearling operations on your ranch is more profitable, then it's partly, I think, as Jack ta- or as uh, James talked about, it's somewhat of a lifestyle choice. Uh, and it's and it's part of a, a shift in, in how things have been done. But I don't think there's a right or wrong way. You know, I think that uh, having diversity uh, in operations, having diversity in in the products you sell is is not all bad, especially in these volatile times. You know, we think a lot about trying to match our production cycle to our environment, and and then we you know we talked last time about the cost per unit, and it kind of occurred to me like, well, when we say that it costs me six hundred and fifty eight bucks a unit to run my you know run my operation. And somebody else says, well, it costs me 728 bucks a unit. And then we start thinking about, well, I wean 550 pound calves. And another guy says, well, I wean 440 pound calves. You know, I, I got to doing some thinking about that because we think about the production cycle and our cost per unit. Well, you could have a higher cost per unit, but you might be actually weaning more weight, right? Like you might have more weight. And so I went back and was reading some of Stan Beaver's stuff. And he actually would take, when you're trying to compare a production cycle, maybe in two different environments, or maybe they're side by side, he would take his cost per unit divided by 100 weight of calf weaned. And that became a metric that he used to start comparing ranch to ranch or comparing one production cycle, one production model to another production was cost per 100 pounds of weaning weight. And I thought that was interesting. Well, I think you're, I mean, I think that is something we can talk about. People tend to get hung up on one metric, you know, what's my cost per calf or what's my pound of gain. And I really think there's two or three or four metrics that need to get looked at. And, and I know in that first call we had, Jack said, Hey, acres don't matter so much out West, but maybe it does matter. One guy's making, you know, 500 bucks an acre and somebody else is making $200 an acre. What's the difference? What's driving that? And so I do think we need to explore, you know, the multiple different metrics that somebody ought to be looking at. It ought not just be one. Here's the dumb question, guy. <clears throat> I'm, uh, the disparity that you mentioned, Jack, between the the profitability of your cow-calf enterprise versus the yearling heifer enterprise seems significant enough that you might want to shift that way, you know, or, or at, a, at a minimum, be somewhat diversified where you've got some of both. Uh, the dumb question is, it's obvious that if everybody went to a yearling operation, there wouldn't be any calves. And I realize that would never happen. 
but it does make me wonder, you know, what are the environment, are they primarily environmental conditions or, uh, you know, other financial or infrastructure setups that, that would make the cow-calf enterprise a little bit more profitable or at least competitive with the yearling operation? I see from people that have done yearling operations that I think that requires a little bit different kind of um, abilities in terms of making sure animals are gaining well. You're not just trying to maintain body weight on mother cows, and I'm not minimizing the effort required, you know, to manage body condition on on mother cows and keep calves profitable. Uh, so the dumb question is obviously, if everybody went to yearlings, there wouldn't be any calves. What are the environmental conditions or something else that make the cow calf enterprise uh, more competitive or more profitable? Or conversely, in that environment, a yearling operation would not work. Well, from a pure economic standpoint, I think it's hay cost and hay production cost would be, you know, a key factor in that. Um, and I know that, that, that keeping track of all the, the costs that go into the hay production is not always something everyone does, but I would encourage folks to really know what it costs per ton of hay on your operation. Mm. And then there's going to be years that it's cheaper to buy hay than put hay up. And it's going to be years when it's cheaper to put hay up than buy hay. And so figuring out, can you feed that forage on the stock without running the equipment over it and putting it in a stack and putting it back out? Or can you not? And those operations that have got the hay piece figured out, I think that helps be the North Star on should we be a cow-calf operator or should we be a yearling operator? Yeah, something else that comes to mind regarding feed costs uh, is that I I grew up in Arkansas and in parts of Arkansas and I think Florida, uh, there are areas that have a lot of grass, but it doesn't always have the sufficient nutrient value to put a lot of gain on uh, yearling animals. And so some of those environments seem to be well suited to keeping mother cows, but not so much to putting weight on you know, say a seven or eight weight calf. I'm curious if that's uh, an accurate perception. It seems like we see something similar with Hawaii and Washington state, at least on the east side of the state, we have a radically different environment than the big island of Hawaii. But we import a lot of, um, I think I would say more four and five weight calves from the big island because they don't have the feed resources to put weight on those calves, but, but it's a decent environment for maintaining a batch of mother cows. Well, that's why I've got so much respect for the American rancher is their <laughs> business partner is mother nature, you know, and mother nature's not always kind. Uh, and mother nature throws different things to him. As Jack has said, you know, he's, he's dealing with drought. Uh, and in Florida, I know that there's usually no lack of grass, but the quality of that grass is is nothing compared to what it is out west. And so I think that, you know, the three legs of the stool, you've got to have the ecological, sociological and the economic side of the equation looked at. I don't think it's it's uh, you're not going to be most profitable if you just look at one of those pieces. Well, I would just I mean, to Jack and Tip's point. You know, cows are an amazing animal that can carry a lot of condition on their body, given a 
certain period of time where they can regain a lot of weight and then use that to kind of get them through the harder times or when maybe the grass isn't so good. And so I think in Arkansas that, you know, whatever fescue isn't the most, isn't the best feed, but during certain times of the year, cows can gain a lot of weight and put a lot of back fat on. And then during the dormant season, you know, when that feed doesn't have so much punch, but it's still palatable. And the cow with the rumen is an amazing animal that can take really low quality feed and, and survive off of it. Right. And then use that excess on her back to get her through until the next uh, good time is. And I think it's what happens a lot of times in some places is that other environmental things like um, it isn't so much the the quality of the feed it's just the accessibility of that feed so snow for example can cover up what would be fully acceptable forage for a cow but she just can't get to it now because we've because of snow's got that thing covered so i think there's places what i learned in nevada was that there i think one of the biggest unfair advantages of nevada is dormant season grazing because there's usually in the valley there's very little snow um, there's a lot of snow in the mountains, but the valley, the cattle can migrate to the valleys. They have access to pretty low quality feed. But if they have went to the mountain during the summer and gained a lot of weight, they can go to that valley floor in the wintertime, um, utilize that poor quality feed, burn the back fat off of her, and, uh, and it's good enough to get her to the next year. But that feed doesn't get covered up. You know, the cows still have access to it. And that's a big driver economically when you're when your cows have access to even what we would call poor quality feed. And then there's some places that just, you know, when it gets covered up, the best, the best way to take advantage of that is during the season when it's really good feed and it's not covered up. And that's where stalkers or yearlings make for, um, if you don't have that ability to go to a low Valley or whatever, you can just run stalkers on that place and just put a lot of weight on those yearlings at certain time at, the, the time of year when it the it matches with the uh, quality of the forage and and then you're done for the year and that's what my dad does at seven thousand feet elevation with wind chills of you know minus fifty degrees you know he just is he he leaves in the winter time he doesn't have animals available in the winter time so what I'm hearing James and Clay is that because of the differences of topography and feed resources in the West. Back to Tip's question, there will always be calves uh, grown in the West. And so if we wanted to shift operations, change them, there will probably be calves available for people to uh, to purchase. But another question is custom grazing. I mean, cows make us 20 bucks on paper. Cows make us 20 bucks per AUM. Yearling heifer makes us 30 bucks per AUM. But a custom grazed steer makes us 37.50 per AUM. But I'm hesitant to look that direction because I don't know if that's a uh, if there's always going to be demand for custom grazing. Any thoughts about that approach? The demand is certainly a, a concern on that. You know, with your cow calf operation, you know that those cows are going to have a calf and bring it to the weaning pen every year. In a, a custom grazing, you may have a great customer that's that's using your operations, and then next year he decides to be out. And so there's definitely some risk in that. And I think if you were going to move to being a custom grazer, your backup would be be a yearling operation and you'd have to have the capital to be able to put your own yearlings on there if that custom grazer didn't come. And I think it it gets back to 
you know, the, the choices. I mean, life's full of choices. And one of those choices is, <clears throat> do we retain ownership or do we just provide resources for somebody else's uh, ownership of cattle? And, and that's been one, I think, that people have wrestled with for years in the West. I think we can get fearful of that because we look at the entire industry. I mean, it was at one point, I remember on uh, one particular ranch I was at and we were struggling trying to find people, find, find labor, right? And everybody's like, oh, it's just so bad. It's bad all over the world, blah, blah, blah. And you got really this naysaying thing. And I'm like, we're not trying to find thousands of people. We're just trying to find five, right? We're, is there five good people that we can get out there? And I would say that, so that come. For me, it came down to us being able to market our operation as a place for five people to desire to work. And I would say from a standpoint, like let's say your case, for example, if if uh, if custom grazing is a good enterprise for you and you offer a quality service, like you're only trying to find one or two people that find value in that. You're not trying to solve the entire industry's problem, I think. A lot of times people will get into like, what if we can't, or, you know, is there, what if we all went to urines? Is there still going to be an, and to me, I kind of try not to get too caught up in that and just say, if you market yourself, market your operation. And if you've made a good match, meaning you can bring stalkers into your operation and they gain a lot of weight and you do a good job of managing them, I think you'll always find, you'll always have customers, um, you know, because you get that reputation, just like you get a reputation if you've got quality calves, like, if you've got quality genetics, quality replacement heifers, quality cat, you're always going to have a market for those. And I think that's where my brain tries to go rather than trying to solve the entire industry. You know, well, what if this all, everybody went to urine operations, then there wouldn't be any, you know, everybody would be competing. It's like, we'll just be the best at what you're good at. And I think you'll, it'll take care of itself. So we've kind of addressed the financial considerations, but also on this ranch, and you've touched on, touched a little bit on quality of life, and I think we're all unique that way. But what about the ecological considerations? Is there any inherent value that a cow-calf has to regenerate rangeland versus an owned yearling versus a custom-grazed yearling? Or is a cow a cow a cow? I mean, I could probably speak to that. I think that cows are – I mean, and, and you could speak to this, Jack, and I think you and I – kind of know some of the stories uh, and some of even the examples that you've had in the last year of your life where you've been able to use cows as a great management tool for ecological health by feeding hay in certain places. And it's a, quite frankly, your story on your particular ranch is inspiring. And you may be willing to share that of how you've used cows during the dormant season and your hay feeding operation to an ecological advantage. But I think I really believe cows can be used as a tool or in dormant season grazing to reduce, you know, decadent forage that needs freshened up per se. And you may not want to do that with stalkers because you'll lose performance in the summertime if you try to get them to utilize wolfy feed or whatever. And cows are a great tool. And I would say the dormant season is a great opportunity to do that. And so absolutely there's advantages for having cows on an operation from an ecological standpoint. And I think stalkers are probably less, uh, uh, let's say, useful as a landscaping tool because we tend to want to, um, we, we tend to want to get optimum performance or ma maybe even maximum performance out of yearlings when we've got them in there for a short season to try to get as much gain as we can. And therefore we don't push them to try to, 
to be utilized as a tool um, so much. So I don't know if you'd be willing to share a little of your story of how you used cows as a tool in from an ecological standpoint. Well, we, we uh, since we're feeding cattle in the winter anytime, and since we have uh, purchased hay to uh, do part of that with, uh, we can put cattle any place we want on this ranch and feed them. And we found that if we by using electric fencing, by increasing stock density, and uh, and allowing a little waste to occur because we're feeding low quality feeds at in mid gestation, uh, we've been able to uh, control shrubs increase ground cover, and uh, I think increase the uh, overall resilience of the rangeland by doing that. But I'm also, uh, and I think you make great points with that uh, owned yearling, you're not going to, you don't have that opportunity. You don't have that period where you can say, well, if they shrink a little bit or they just maintain weight, we're okay. And certainly not on a custom graze yearling. So I think you've given me some good things to think about as far as a cow calf versus a yearling versus a custom graze yearling. But it it comes back to maybe these ranches are somewhat diversified. I mean, every ranch is unique, but maybe there's places on a ranch that are best for a cow and other places that are best for a yearling. Jack, I want to ask a question about enterprise types and terminology for people that are less familiar with uh, these different ranching options. About half of the listenership of the podcast is ranchers, but the other half is various flavors of natural resource or range professionals, uh, agency range cons, technical service providers, researchers, students. Uh, so to my question, I want to have you define a yearling heifer enterprise versus custom grazing. And I think you actually said custom steer grazing. Can you define how those things look different and what do they exactly mean? You bet. So a lot of calves in the West are weaned and sold in the fall. So one example of a yearling heifer operation would be you could buy weaned calves in late October, November, winter them over uh, in the spring, put them on grass, breed them. Uh, so uh, you'd be owning them all this time. So the heifer would come to your place, let's say weighing 525 pounds You'd winter her, get modest gains. So you turn her out on grass at about 650 pounds in May, and then summer and sell her as a bred heifer at uh, 950 to 1,000 pounds in October or November. And that'd be almost a year uh, that you'd own that heifer. On the uh, For a custom grazing enterprise, for example, you could uh, have cattle show up the 1st of May, May 15th, have them there for the peak grazing situation, and they'd be gone by mid-August to mid-September. And those animals would put on anywhere from 250 to 350 pounds of gain, depending on the forage, depending on the condition of the animal. Those animals, the uh, landowner would not have to own at all. Uh, it would just be a service he would provide to the person that wanted to get gain on the animal. Um with the yearling heifer enterprise, we could do it where you could re take ownership of those heifers at 650 pounds in the spring, for example. And so then you'd reduce your land ownership down to six months and wouldn't have any winter hay feeding. There's a lot of options, but the main thing is, is that with a yearling enterprise, you have to differentiate between whether you own that yearling or whether you are uh, just custom grazing it for someone else who owns the animal. Does that answer your question, Tip? 
Yes, it does. That's a good summary. Thank you. I think there are contexts on rangeland where yearlings can work well, particularly where rangeland health is high and you're not necessarily attempting to to force something or or have to be aggressive about dormant season grazing. So in a situation where you can do growing season grazing, particularly at a, at a light stock density, which, you know, there may be, there are circumstances where that's either uh, the only option, you know, for lack of infrastructure or because the environment doesn't support the amount of money it would take to increase the infrastructure that would be necessary to run a higher density. Uh, where you have yearlings on uh, high quality rangeland at a lower stock density, and they have the ability to be pretty selective about what they eat, uh, sort of high grade it and not stay too long, you know, where you're skimming the top off and moving to the next spot, uh, there you could still realize pretty good gains on, on yearlings. And typically, you know, high uh, animal health because they're consuming a pretty broad variety of of species in that context. There was, I mean, another idea or thought, I think that, I mean, just kind of comes to mind is, you know, I mean, it seems like there's always some cows available and there's always people that are willing to take their cows to avoid from feeding hay. So I think if, you know, I think of your case, Jack, where maybe there's some neighbors, right? If you were, if you didn't have cows because it was just an enterprise that was not very lucrative for you, or maybe it was a money losing enterprise, or maybe you wanted to maximize the stockers, there's probably neighbors that would be willing under your management to bring their cows to your landscape and be used as a tool. Um, So I think we just keep our options open and be innovative and not think that we have to have everything. But I think um, this is where I really believe that the social piece and having good relationships, partnerships, reputation, ability to market, like ability to sell our stuff, like is is valuable when it comes to making good ecological and economic decisions on our ranches. It's like that social piece is critical. And there's lots of ways to 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 think about that, be innovative and and still do a good job of managing our ranches. James, you talked about the importance of networking and relationships. I couldn't agree more. The future of the of ranching in the West is going to be about our relationships as much as our ability to wean a healthy calf, isn't it? And so for a person like me that likes living in a high mountain valley and spending a lot of time by myself, the idea of my future depending on relationships is a little bit scary, frankly. So what are steps that a person can take to make sure that they have those relationships, that they have that networking that enable them to have an enterprise or an organization in the future that is adaptive and resilient and uh, manages its rangeland well and has the best enterprise on its ranch at all times? James? Well, that's a, it's a big question, Jack. And I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say this just to make you feel good on the air for everybody to hear, but I really do believe that there's people like you that do it well, um, that network well, that have your, um, you have your data together, right? You, in a lot of ways, ecologically and economically, you know your numbers and it gives you a lot of credibility out there in the marketplace. And I think if people can do that, then I, and, and have, um, have a quality story to be able to tell and to be able to share, then I think that the 
the sky's the limit. I think that there's going to be lots of opportunities in front of people like that. And that's what I would want to continue to encourage people to do is to take care of your business because it opens up the door to so many things that we can't even, we possibly don't even know are coming our way right now, right? Like there's just things that are going to be happening. And for us to continue to position our operations so that we have the data, we have the facts, and it's not just a bunch of thoughts and feelings, but we, ha- we have real tangible things that we can share about our economics or our ecological conditions on our ranch or the opportunities that we can offer other people based on our own data, our own experience, whether that's cost of gain or whether that's pounds of gain that we get off of our operation. Um, I think just having that information um, and keeping good records is the beginning of part of that. And then just continuing to um, put yourself out there to go learn to go meet with people, to go to conventions, to get on podcasts, listen to people, make a phone call. I mean, I know that's not always comfortable for people, but um, I think people start to, once they start to do that and experience that, I actually think they really begin to enjoy that stuff and finding those people that um, challenge their thinking, that can support them, that can encourage them and the new things that we learn. I think um, I don't know. Those are just some random thoughts off the cuff to such a big question. That's a great answer. Boy, I agree. I think that uh, so often we're speakers in the waiting rather than listen and learn. And it's amazing what a person can uh, gather and learn and help their own operation by just listening to how some folks are doing it uh, that might be a little different than them. And I think so oftentimes that if it's not just like we do it, we discount it. But I think uh, Jack has uh, clearly demonstrated the ability to kind of look at different enterprises, see how they might fit, and then figure out how he packages those together to really make a successful operation. Tell us, what what should we look for online? You just mentioned a fellow named Stan Beaver. What What can we find as far as doing economic analysis or financial analysis on our ranch operations. Any suggestions, James? Well, I, I mean, I think ranching for profit, Dallas Mount and Dave Pratt, and I mean, obviously Dallas is kind of newer to this, but I think they're a tremendous resource for um, ranchers to be able to really study and get down to enterprise analysis and gross margin analysis I think there's some work that's coming out of the, you know, King Ranch Institute, Clay Mathis and some of that group that they provide ranchers, you know, some, uh, I can't remember what they call those. They're, um, uh, I got the thing. They're like little symposiums that you can, and they got some economic symposiums that you can tap into and use, you know, kind of do a webinar on. Um, so, I mean, I, those are some of the things that are out there. I mean, I, but I do think ranching for profits in Dallas Mount, I mean, I think they do a tremendous job of helping people think about uh, doing all of their cost analysis on a ranch and really getting down to some of those enterprises. Great. Thanks. I think the key to this, though, and this is what I would say, you know, we talk a lot about working on the business and working in the business, and that is a mainstay of ranching for profit. And I would say, you know, we're also in this dilemma of ranchers feeling convicted that I need to work, you know, 
on my business, not in my business. And so they end up feeling guilty when they go out and, and move their cows from one pasture to the other because that's whatever, $10 an hour work. And they're supposed to go work in or on their business, meaning analyze their numbers and get their spreadsheets and do all of that stuff because that's $110 an hour work. And yet I, I have conversations with ranchers all the time that they say, you know, I, I can't find anybody to work for me. I can't find anybody that's a good stockman that cares about the cattle. I can't find anybody to go irrigate like I irrigate. And so we tend to, we tend to be, and, and yet there's people that will help us work on that hundred dollar an hour work and get our, get our data organized, get those spreadsheets set up. So, cause we say we're working on the business, but a lot of that is just bookkeeping and administrative stuff that really can be hired out for 25 or 30 bucks an hour. Right. All the while, we have more time to go out there and interact with our livestock or get our irrigation done or do the things that we really enjoy, that quality of life that we tend to be in this business for. And we could hire some of that work on, on our business, like having our books in order and having that administrative work done. So then we spend less time analyzing those spreadsheets. We, can, we still need to do it, but we, we tend to we can hire some of that work done. And I think that's where I would challenge that working on the business can sometimes, it might be more economical to hire some of that work done than to actually think that we need to do it all ourselves. So, Well, when you think of human nature, we tend to migrate towards those things we enjoy. And what I've seen in most agriculture and ranchers uh, doing math uh, accumulating the the books and records is not something folks enjoy. And so that piece of the equation tends to get less attention. And so if it's not done or not hired out, that's where we find ranchers that are in a situation that they really don't know what their cost or their break even or their gross margin is. Uh, so I agree, James, that that folks do need to spend some energy on this, whether it's at the ranch or they hire it out and get somebody that, that does love the numbers to help translate some of that. So I'll thank you guys again for taking the time to visit about this. You know, we often say that it ought to be profitable or a, a business that relies on the, an animal doing this valuable work of converting, you know, cellulose, the most abundant carbohydrate on the planet into something that's useful for humans ought to be a profitable enterprise. And uh, I, I really do think this is important work to help people figure out how they can do it in a way that, that is profitable, not just for individual enterprises, but because we as a culture need that to continue. Uh, so I'm thankful for you guys' time today, and I look forward to continuing this. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona 
and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.